My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. It's a significant change in the macro regime. And I am a believer that that's the case. It's that we're starting an inflationary era. And when I say inflationary era, it doesn't mean necessarily the inflation will always be on the rise. It just means that it will be higher than historical standards, uh, regardless if it is 3%, 4% throughout the next 10 years in average. And I think that will be the case because the underlying factors that we have right now are very uh, entrenched in the economy, the chronic underinvestments in in natural resources, the deglobalization trends are continuing to to, uh, be very significant. Um, And you have the fiscal stimulus still very inflationary. and the inequality issues kind of creating this need for workers to demand higher wages and salaries when um when social programs are also going to be a large you know a large part of this too so there are all these things and i you know i think some um if you think about the the debates happening in markets right now is that some folks believe that this upper move in inflation and the downward move that we've seen recently is just sort of a cyclical kind of change that was not as fundamental as or structural as some macro thinkers uh, believe. And I'm in the camp that this are these changes are very structural in their nature, and and that that is the reason why we're seeing some uh, some different behaviors in asset classes. And and uh, again, it, it's not doom and gloom and or anything like that, but it. It will create different types of opportunities. On this episode of the What the Finance podcast, I have the pleasure of welcoming back Tavi Costa, who's a partner and macro strategist at Crest Capital. So, Tavi, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Anthony. No problem. And I'm looking forward to it because I think it's been over a year since we last spoke and a lot has definitely happened. But to be fair, if you look at the markets, I guess there hasn't been much movement, but lots of noise uh, during that period. So if we can get maybe your your uh, what you're currently seeing in, in the markets and I guess in the economy and, and the key things that you're watching at the moment. Well, I think 2023 has been uh, quite a surprise to a lot of people and the good uh, lesson that uh, most of the times, what is obvious is obviously wrong, and a lot of people are very bearish, including even ourselves um, or myself, at least in terms of the overall economy. And uh, we've had a, a very uh, critical move in equity markets. Uh, the economy could be already in a recession. Who knows? Although um, there are mixed signals in, in terms of that. However, there have been some pivotal changes in terms of macro regime over the last two to three years that I think a lot of people are sort of ignoring, unfortunately, still. And that has to do with, you know, the 60-40 portfolios and uh, the fact of the value to growth change and interest rates being higher than the historical norms. Uh, inflation, although decelerated, still is higher than also historical norms. Uh, cost of living is still higher than historical norms. Wage pressure is starting to uh, become more and more evident. Protests is going on in terms of uh, of, of folks demanding higher uh, paying. And so all those things are happening. The 
fixed income market is still under pressure, despite the fact that we've had technology and other ultra high long duration assets doing very well. Gold is starting to look uh, less volatile, especially on the downside relative to U.S. Treasuries for the first time uh, in the last 45 years. And so there are a lot of big changes. Um, those 60-40 portfolios had a very difficult year in 2022. Um, those are usually the beginning of big changes I had. And a lot of people, again, are dismissing or neglecting some of those um, shifts. And uh, in, and so we're kind of in the middle of, of, of all this. We've had Brazil and other uh, emerging markets that are more commodity favorable um, actually perform quite well, despite the notion that if the Fed is doing its steepest uh, rate hike cycle in almost um, you know in decades, you would expect that those markets would be under pressure, but we didn't see that. Um, so there's so many different ways of analyzing it. I think um, we're still in the process of seeing a lot of those macro trends unfolding. I'm very bearish in, in parts of the markets that are very crowded, such as the big tech. And um, I think there are companies that will be rolling their debt at a much higher rate that will be squeezing their margins also because of the wages and salaries and potentially consumer getting in trouble. So there's opportunities on that side. You have credit spreads and other parts of the market still being very tight, which is a sign of um, sort of, you know, not in line with the risk, uh, meaning volatility should be a lot higher given where rates are. And we're seeing a lot of those instruments that sort of help you to understand volatility are still historically suppressed, regardless if it is VIX or credit spreads themselves. And credit spreads to me look like an opportunity on the, on, on the short side. Um, and the commodities market continues to be more and more attractive. Um, I think you know we put out a letter recently about this redefining moment that we are in 60-40 portfolios and conventional and traditional ways of investment strategies and, and allocations. Um, and I think that those hard assets, uh, particularly commodities, will start you know becoming a, a significant part of those portfolios. And and so how will that dynamic really fulfill this industries that have been you know, so out of favor uh, over the last decades are all going to be important trends. So uh, sorry to go long, but that's those are the the thoughts that I have about overall markets right now. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess maybe can we focus on that that shift that you've seen over the past few years? I know you've st- sort of mentioned a few, I guess, the uh, the impacts that that shift has had, but can you maybe focus more about that? And what is this shift, um, not just on assets, but I guess the global economy and the impact it will have? Well, I think there's so many charts where you see those breaks of correlations or divergences in in lines or either macro assets or indicators where, you know, there's a very long list of indicators basically pointing to a recession. And then there are important changes in terms of how assets have uh, behaved uh, in times when, let's say, you know, treasuries have been under pressure, you would expect that to reflect in the gold market, but gold market has been incredibly resilient, especially relative to real rates. And uh, it's either 
because we're yet to see the gold market reflect much lower prices or it's a significant change in the macro regime. And I am a believer that that's the case. It's that we're starting an inflationary era. And when I say inflationary era, it doesn't mean necessarily inflation will always be on the rise. It just means that it will be higher than historical standards, uh, regardless if it is 3%, 4%. Uh, throughout the next 10 years in average. And I think that will be the case because the underlying factors that we have right now are very uh, entrenched in the economy, the chronic underinvestments in in natural resources, the deglobalization trends are continuing to to, uh, be very significant. Um, And you have the fiscal stimulus still very inflationary um, and the inequality issues kind of creating this need for workers to demand higher wages and salaries when um when social programs are also going to be a large you know a large part of this too so there are all these things and i you know i think some um if you think about the the debates happening in markets right now is that some folks believe that this upper move in inflation and the downward move that we've seen recently is just sort of a cyclical kind of change that was not as fundamental as or structural as some macro thinkers uh, believe. And I'm in the camp that this are these changes are very structural in their nature. And, and that that is the reason why we're seeing some uh some different behaviors in asset classes. And and uh again, it, it's not doom and gloom and or anything like that, but it it will create different types of opportunities and it will also change the leadership of the market. And so this idea that we've had recently of tech stocks really leading the market, I am very skeptical about that because I think, number one, it's a crowded trade. Number two, if that is the case that we're going to see what, what I think we're going to see, then higher cost of capital will actually have to reflect that the present value of those businesses needs to be lower. So uh, that is, you know, and, and why pay 100 times earnings on a a think stock or a technology business when you can buy a company in Brazil or other uh, emerging markets that have that kind of um, you know uh, favorable commodity lad or resource rich economy that um, are trading at you know three four times earnings on very well established businesses over decades and so uh, banks being the one example or other commodity uh, parts of their of their of those industries and. Um, I think I think that that's all sort of uh, the kind of risk versus opportunity that we're seeing, um, and uh, you know markets will always be like that. But I I think a lot of people are dismissing some some big changes here uh, that will likely um, you know uh, shift the way we may um, create some you know real wealth generation over the next decade or so, uh, really being driven by. Uh, focusing on value investing and 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 natural resource industries and hard assets, um, and uh, and and being more careful with how we value companies uh, in a world where cost of capital could be higher, and we may see you know deglobalization playing a role and some other issues that may create higher risk over time. Yeah, and I guess if we look at the, the you know treasury markets at the moment, uh, it's inverted yield curves. So I guess they probably are disagreeing in the short term of they're expecting interest rates to go down from here. Uh, I guess over 
in, in the next few years. Um, so do you think that's something that people are underestimating this macro shift uh, that they just think maybe we're going to see a recession, interest rates are going to go down, inflation is going to come down, and then we're going to go back to the traditional way of doing things? Well, that that's a good point. So, you know, the traditional way of doing things is you have, you know, a recession every whatever five years or so, give it or take. Every time there's a recession, what you do is you increase your allocation on fixed income. And uh, there is a, a period where inflation rises right before the crisis, then inflation starts to decelerate. And then there is an economic shock. Um, the Fed has to cut interest rates. Treasuries long on the long end actually move a lot higher. And that sort of you know framework has worked so well in the last two to three kind of decades. But I think I don't think they're gonna work as well. And and you buy the dollar and so forth. You know, I think I think that you know during more stagflationary periods, gold is is actually served very well as a defensive asset. And uh, you know, I'm I'm more and more of a believer that that's gonna be the case. And that's because. Eventually, the market begins to price in that uh, if there is any sort of shock in the in the economy, uh, ultimately what we see is very very large amounts of uh, of stimulative packages from the government and from the Fed that it eventually drives hard assets a lot higher. So that to me is 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 a risk. So the market is seeing that and, and thinking, oh well, no, that's also positive for the overall uh, stock market because. Um, you know, essentially what we see is, is a flood of liquidity coming in that eventually drives everything higher. But ultimately, what you find is that, you know, those periods when, you know, when you have this level of intervention from the monetary and fiscal side, and also because of the inflationary era that we're likely getting into, um, it eventually drives cost of, of capital much higher which is already happening, right? I mean, if you look at the junk bond yields, if you're a company, a corporation is having to uh, raise capital at a 10% or so rate. And t- so if, if that's the case, you know, over time, if we start seeing more and more of those rates sustain higher for the overall economy, not just one seg- segment of, of the market, which is the junk bonds, um, you know, you're going to start seeing some issues here because, um, some business models are not really, um, uh, I, I guess, appropriate for a macro regime like that. And so, you know, with with you know, if you start applying some thoughts, you know, if you look at some companies that have worked so well over the last ten years or so, you know, whatever are the companies that Lyft and Uber and some others, and I guess Lyft is not well, uh, well, Lyft and Uber are certainly in that camp, but. Um, you know, some other software businesses and so forth that have really uh, uh, been driven by this kind of growth mentality and not so much focusing on on profitability. You know, with those businesses, you know, a good exercise would be to think about if those businesses would survive in a period like the 70s or the 1940s or the 1910s when we had inflation and 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 investors are demanding higher yields and and therefore, higher cost of capital was the case. And, you know, would, would those businesses survive during those decades? And the answer is and not necessarily those ones, but, um, you know, some of those companies would not survive. And so, uh, you know, if you read the book on, I forgot the name, I think it's a shoe dog or something on Nike, you know, they tell you that, that um, uh, Phil Knight uh, tells you that 
that during that period, it was very difficult. Nike almost didn't survive because of the amount of debt that they had to take and and how costly that was for them. And that's one of the most successful businesses we had over their last, you know, decades or so. And so it was very difficult to, to really sustain those periods of times. And I think we're kind of in the beginning of one of those again. Now, you think what's happening with the treasury market right now with the amount of issuances that we're seeing and how much we're going to see of the rolling of the debt dynamic over the next two to three years, which is about 45% of the overall debt. And knowing that 12 months ago, that debt itself was near 0% in terms of the interest rates that the, um, that the government had to pay. And, uh, you know, the next two to three years, they're going to be rolling their debt at least you know, if it's in a short term, close to 5% rates, um, how would that impact uh, not only the interest payment issue, but really by driving interest rates even further to the upside, given the amount of issuances relative to the demand side? So, you know, I, th- I don't think a lot of people are considering those those big changes. This was not the case in 08, right? In 08, what we had was Central banks outside of the U.S. were very focused in um, increasing their balance sheets by buying U.S. treasuries, and we're not seeing that level of demand today. Banks are big buyers of, of treasuries at those times. Uh, we've had other foreign institutions being big buyers, and we're not seeing that. And, and the treasury market sort of this kind of in the cornerstone of the financial system because if you have lack of liquidity and volume for those instruments, what does it mean to junk bonds and corporate bonds and the overall market that tends to price everything on a risk-free rate that is priced on the on the on the treasury side? So, you know, a lot of things are kind of being dismissed, in my opinion, if we're entering a world where rates are pressured higher than we've seen in the last uh, 20, 30 years. And so um, you know, and and it's sort of a no-brainer when you think about. Why are so many allocators completely ignoring hard assets when when there's so many clear signs that is becoming increasingly evident that inflation is here to stay? And you know, to me, and when somebody says, "No, I don't think people are forget, well, just look at traditional sixty forty portfolios. How much of them actually hold commodities or gold or oil or copper or nickel? You know, think about the size of those markets relative to the size of the technology space, for instance. Um, there's some big divergences there that I don't think are going to be the case 10 years from now. Yeah, I guess you could say recency bias and the allocators who have maybe gone for the more uh, value stocks have not been rewarded in the last 10 years. So maybe there's this focus of just following the market, continuing to do its work previously. And yeah, at, at one point in time, they'll... Uh, They'll be caught out. Yeah, and and you can see that you know I put out a letter recently that looks at the valuation of those traditional portfolios, and I I just calculated all the way back to the eighteen hundreds. You know what supposedly is that history of valuations of sixty forties, applying the sixty percent weight on equities and forty percent weight on on uh, the fixed income side of those portfolios. And what you find is that in August of 2021, we've had the most expensive 
um, period for those portfolios that we've seen in 130 years. And, uh, you know, there are clear patterns of, of ups and downs that tends to be secular moves in terms of periods that you want to put your capital towards 60% in equity and 40% in fixed income. And times you just don't want to do that because the yields provided by those two instruments are so low that the risk of, of, of deploying capital into those two asset classes are just not worthwhile. And so right now, throughout history, we are in that period where that calculation itself is you know, extremely expensive right now. And uh, I'm not sure in the next 10 years, those two instruments are going to provide the returns that most investors are expecting, especially at a time when this newer generation have a or has a unrealistic level of expectation when it comes to returns. You know, this maybe it has to do with crypto and uh, technology and the fact that we haven't seen a sustainable shocked in markets where everything comes back, you know, it comes down and it comes screaming back. And it's been easy, I put in quotes because it's never easy, but it's been somewhat of uh, repeatable. And and so markets go down and those younger folks that, you know, have not necessarily bought those those assets, but really seen those markets come back, have this degree of 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 confidence that it's always going to be the case. And uh, I worry about those things, you know, because I, I don't think it's going to be like that. I think, I think equity markets have already seen most of the, of their exceptional performance for the decade potentially. And if that's the case and just looking at how inflated valuations are and how we tend to see a compression of multiples particularly during inflationary periods and how we don't often see two straight decades of robust growth in corporate earnings and the fact that the prior decade was by far the best growth in corporate earnings in real terms that we've had in history and that the other two times that we saw that was in the roaring 20s and the 90s which actually basically preceded a very difficult decade which was the 30s, uh, Great Depression, and the 2000s and 2008, which was also a difficult period uh, with the tech bust and the global financial crisis. So, um, yeah, I'm, I, I, I think it will likely be the case here again, where we're going to see some uh, a struggling process of a lot of corporations um, it, it figure out the AI is a lot more costly than people thought and to make money in those trends are going to be harder that we're living in a world where um you know you should emphasize profitability that the cost of debt itself is going to be more expensive the access for capital is going to be more difficult because the fed has to keep rates higher and uh, all that you know it, it's it's something that is really not priced in 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 financial assets overall so and at the same time, there's a desperate need for, for things such as construction, 
you know, housing markets too expensive. So you may see a construction boom in residential markets. Uh, reshoring is a big topic. So, you know, infrastructure developments are going to happen in developed economies. And that comes full circle into commodities again, right? Because in order to build those things, what we need is then commodities, hard assets. And that's also not priced in markets as a, at all at a time when commodity to equity ratio is at a 50-year low. So to me, that seems you know, much more attractive from a risk-reward perspective than owning a 60-40 portfolio with one of the most expensive valuations in the history of that portfolio itself. So if we say the 60-40 portfolio isn't going to perform as well in the next decade or so, what are, what alternatives would you think are going to maybe provide that performance or even not that, but just better performance than that portfolio? I think there's a, a lot of buckets that will do much better than those 60-40 portfolios. What I would be doing with my money is, um, I think the metals and mining industry is still very um, unloved, historically speaking. It's one of the oldest industries in history. However, it seems to be completely dislocated and with a lot of inefficiencies that are likely to create a lot of opportunities. You know, if I'm thinking about that 60% of equities in my portfolio, I would certainly uh, consider commodity-led economies and commodity-led businesses be part of that percentage. Um Whatever, if regardless if it is Brazilian equities would be a big portion of that. I think those are going to outperform U.S. markets. I think um, South America could be a great way to invest, given its large exposure to resources. I think the oil market will do well. I think home builders could do well because we're going to need more homes. Um, and, uh, on the other side of that 40%, the idea of the 40% is, is, is to look for an asset that is not correlated to that 60% that provides a haven aspect during downside periods of the market. And I think gold is going to be a very important or play a critical role into becoming that asset over time. So if that's the case, you know, you're kind of seeing two forces at once in the gold market. One is central banks buying gold for other reasons, not because they're worried about downside. They're worried about owning a neutral asset and improving and enhancing the quality of their international reserves. So they are buying gold for other reasons. And then you have 60-40 portfolios that are now ignoring the metal, but will likely be buying that when they realize, first of all, the changing market correlations. And number two, the fact that gold itself may be the safest alternative uh, relative to U.S. treasuries. And as we see that evolving, um, it's going to drive the demand for gold and gold will likely get into a what I think would be a secular move. A secular moving gold to the upside tends to drive other commodities. And so I get very bullish in all this because I think those businesses that hold 
resources and, and metals and so forth are just not priced accordingly. And so those things are probably going to be uh, the ones that will perform the best. I mean, I, I can speak for my portfolio and, you know, we've, we've done very well just by doing that and, and, and not necessarily buying GDX and, and all the kind of more traditional ETFs inside of the metals and mining space, but rather looking for kind of a way to apply an ex- activist role into companies that we thought were inefficiently mispriced. And there are no shortage of those things because right now everything is priced for failure. So you have a very high quality asset priced the same way as a poorly driven asset. And so you can you can take a long-term mentality and mindset of creating a strategy of really accumulating those high quality um, companies over time and creating a lot of value. So, you know, to me, that's, that's a much more attractive way of investing than conventionally just buying technology companies and other things that have done so well that people think and assume are going to do, you know, continue to do that well over the next five to 10 years. And whatever worked in the last five years is unlikely to work in the next five years. And, and that applies to a decade long as well. And so you have to kind of have that mentality rather than, you know, looking at the, the, the you know, backward looking kind of analysis is, is very um, concerning. Um, and so it's important to have that way of understanding that, that macro and correlations change over time. And you, you have to kind of uh, apply that in your portfolio as you, as you navigate this, um, you know, the next five to 10 years. So yeah, I caution a lot of people to be looking backwards and, um, and at least uh, consider resource industries as, as an opportunity. Cause I think that's where the biggest uh, returns are going to come from. Yeah. And I know there's quite a lot of nuance to, to look at as well. When you, when you look at those, the re- resource industry and, and the uh, companies in particular. So I don't know if there's anything in particular that you, you watch yourself when uh, researching those companies compared to oh, like regular companies, yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, that's. I mean, just think about the fact that there are not enough geologists in the world today, and how does that apply into the fact that people don't know how to analyze those stocks and those projects? It makes so much sense when you look at the world with those lenses of the fact that we have. You know, just the lack of those those ex- that expertise worldwide. Then, what does that mean about you know how investors are approaching this industry? Um, and so, creating partnerships with uh, people that have been in this in this space for a very long time is probably the smartest thing somebody can do. Or, you know, someone who is an expert of the Brazilian equity market. I mean, I will be a very skillful, um, you know, thing to, uh, to, to do in the next uh, five to 10 years. Folks that understand value investing very well, that go to earning calls and, um, and really dive into those numbers and 10Ks and so forth. 
those guys are going to be incredibly useful in this in this next you know macro regime that we might be entering and so i think that those things are um unfortunately you know still i think uh, peter thiel has a, a thesis about you know the mba idea where you know when you go to the most popular mba um courses are usually the ones you should you should be fading you know regardless if it is software engineering uh or programming um and so forth i mean how many people do you know you know that are really looking forward to become a geologist right i mean it it's it's so reflective of those imbalances in markets right now so going back to your question how to how to look at it um you know we've i've been very um busy trying to understand that market and i certainly have a lot of opinions i think in the resource space where i deal with which is kind of early stage companies is almost taking a hybrid venture capital approach of rather than investing in technology startups doing that in metals and mining so startups of metals and mining that currently have a property that is in a jurisdiction that we believe can develop projects number 2 are on to what we think will be world class discoveries but we don't need to be necessarily writing every company we invest money knowing that the fact that everything is priced for failure allows you to have a very diversified book of companies that ultimately a few of them may work out very well and become unicorns. And we've had that happen in, in our funds. And uh, that's the beauty of this market right now is everything is so cheap that you're able to diversify. But however, if you don't understand the market, there's about two over 2,000 public companies in the mining space in which 90% of them are probably not worth what they're worth in the market right now, even though they're depressed. So you have to be careful. Um, but there's some really good opportunities right now. And uh, if you find that kind of 10% of that market and you kind of screen out most of the things that are crap, which I think for any geologist, um, there are, you know, many ways to screen out and improve your probability very quickly of what is good and what is bad in this in this industries um from a technical perspective of geology overall of those projects um that can improve your betting odds dramatically and that's sort of what we've been doing and then you can add on top of it you know being able to infuse technical expertise into those companies through our network uh, of geologists themselves that can perhaps become or create that trigger for those businesses to improve over time. It's something that the markets are also not really, um, you know, necessarily considering that it's it's already happening in in, in some parts of the industry. And uh, it's certainly something we've been doing. Uh, and lastly, I would say, 
what I like about this industry is the optionality. You have the fact that you can buy things cheap. Number two, you can diversify because everything is cheap. Number three, you can add value by bringing in an expertise or someone who is a true you know, expert of that particular project uh, and can really help that company to grow. Okay, that's another thing. Number four or five, you have also the fact that um, there is a desperate need for metals. So at some point, institutional capital is going to be, you know, or it's going to be funnel into this industry. And, and so looking for the best assets in this in the space is is smart and probably you know uh you know it's still an early move in my opinion and then on top of it all you have the chance of entering a gold cycle because of how indebted economy is and how you have all this multi factor approach that can drive gold prices a lot higher and therefore i've never seen a gold cycle that didn't drive commodity cycle and that macro tailwind itself can be, you know, alone what can get you those extreme returns in this industry over time. You know, one time I spoke, I had a chance to pitch our idea to Sim Zell, who died recently, unfortunately. And, um, you know, it was a, it's a huge pleasure to be able to speak with him first because I'm a big fan. I used to be a big fan. And, um, when I pitched to him the what we were doing, he was uh, not only impressed, but he said, "You know, I think, you know, congrats for for being early in this in these trends. I think, you know, I think that's the right approach." And so, um, yeah, I, I'm very um, I'm very excited about uh, being alone in this sort of in this sort of idea because I think that's where. Uh, when you invest in the markets, you don't invest when people, most people agree with you. Your idea is to come up with something that people will agree with you in the future, not now. And I think that's what we got in this in this strategy right now. Yeah, it makes sense. So Tavi, thanks so much for your insights. I really appreciate it. Uh, my last question is, what is one message you'd like people to take away from our conversation? Well, to you know, use your time efficiently, I think. And to, um, you know, there's, there's like I explained here, I think there's so many ways to um, successfully spend your time and capital and focus on industries that have been forgotten over the years that are essential to the functioning of the global economy and creating partnerships or entering a new industry or or learning about new industry like resource um, companies and so forth is probably something that one, especially a young person, should be considering. Um, now, I understand that there's a lot of ways to do that. You know, like I said, becoming an expert of the Brazilian market or the Mexican market or um, an Asian economy that is a, a export commodity-driven um, there's a lot of ways you can kind of um, capitalize on those trends and focusing on that would be, you know, something I wish someone would have told me back in the days. And it's definitely something I'm, I'm trying to apply today and, you know, we'll see if it works. And I'm, I'm really excited because I, I've, you know, 
I'm a I'm a student of history and I think um this is one of the most exciting times of my career so I'm very uh glad to be um to be part of this and trying to um accomplish so many goals in this in this industries. Yeah, I think that's a great message and I'd, I'd agree with that. I think a lot of people, especially young people, maybe take for granted what we what we have and, and the reliance we we have on these commodities. And as you said, it's probably not priced into to how important they are and the potential challenges we'll, we'll see in the future. Um, but yeah, thank, thank you so much for your time again. I really appreciate it. So if anyone wanted to find out more about your work and what you do, where would the best place for that be? Yeah, I have to run Prescott Capitals. We have three different hedge funds, a global macro, long, short, and a precious metals fund. We're very focused on commodities, regardless if it is precious metals and electrification metals. And um, obviously, macro is a big thing and for us, and therefore, I'm very involved with that. Macro trades and ideas and trends uh, and patterns that we like to look at historically and how to capitalize on those. Um, and um Leslie, if you're looking for research and other pieces that we put out, you can look at my uh, my my Twitter uh, at Tavi Costa or uh, our website uh, Cresca.net is where you can find information about our funds, but also research letters that we put out, um, you know, quite often regarding our, our macro views. Perfect. I'll put that in the description description below. But thanks again for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening and if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released. I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading and finance. See you on the next show.